Welcome to Secrets True Crime, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. This episode does contain foul language. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode 12 of season three of a serialized podcast, and the episodes are designed to be listened to in order. Jessica Leanne Hamby has been missing since January 3rd, 2018. The 24-year-old mother of three was a beautiful brunette with big hazel eyes. She had a head full of long, thick hair, was five foot two inches tall, and weighed about 125 pounds. In the four and a half years since Jessica was last reported to be seen, the stories regarding her disappearance and fate have been plentiful and the facts scarce. We are starting from the beginning, and by the beginning, we are beginning with Jessica's life six months prior to her disappearance as we bring to you the findings of our investigation in real time. We receive a lot of questions from listeners, followers on social media, and supporters of our Patreon site. We try to answer those questions as quickly and as best we can, but sometimes that isn't possible since we are actively investigating and learning new information, then recording and bringing that information through the podcast. In episode 10, we announced that we were setting up a phone line where you could leave us your questions for us to answer in a special Q&A episode. This is episode two of that Q&A, where we will continue answering the most frequently asked and probing questions. But don't miss out on the end of this episode. The last part is a disturbing prelude into episode 13 that you will not want to miss. Let's get started with the Q&A. So the next topic is Nelos. How accurate or reliable is the Nelos information? I've read that it isn't scientific. Oh boy, this is definitely me, huh? Definitely you, all you. All right. So the answer to the first part of the question is actually included in the NELOS data because it includes a measure of quantified accuracy with each location point. It it literally tells you this is the point I think the phone was at and this location is accurate within this many meters. That accuracy range, it could be tens of feet all the way up to several miles. So the question is how reliable it is 
related to that accuracy. As we've said when we presented the NELOS information, we don't consider NELOS as evidence of location necessarily. What I mean is we won't say that a person's phone was at a particular address solely based on the NELOS information. We view all of it in context, taking into consideration all of the other NELOS data, as well as statements of witnesses and other information that we have to determine the area where a phone was most likely located at a given time. More importantly, the way we use NELOS is to determine where the phone could not have been. In Jessica's case, that's particularly important because the statement has been made that law enforcement can't show that Jessica ever left Elgin Cochran Road. Based on the NELOS, which they obtained with a search warrant, that statement is not accurate. There are two other points to make regarding the reliability of NELOS, and these come from court cases where the topic has been argued. The first is that the purpose behind the cell phone carrier producing NELOS in the first place, the reason they do that is so that the cell phone carrier can make multi-million dollar decisions to optimize their services for customers. The second point that I want to make is that Law enforcement has used NELOS data on hundreds, probably even thousands of occasions, and they found it to be reliable because they've actually found people within those circles. I'm actually one of those people. I was part of a search for a missing college woman that was murdered, and we did find her body, and the way we found it was searching those circles from NELOS reports. The second part of this question is also about reliability of the data, but when the question writer uses the word scientific, to me that calls out standards like peer review and repeatability of results. That's a higher standard than a personal belief in the reliability of the information, which is basically what I just explained. And it usually comes up in reference to the federal court's Daubert standard, also known as Rule 702 of the Federal Rules of Evidence on Testimony by Expert Witnesses. The Daubert standard lays out the points that a court has to consider when deciding if expert testimony should be allowed. And it's also used to determine if evidence can be admitted in a case when that evidence is technical or scientific in nature and requires some kind of explanation for the jury by an expert witness. That kind of peer review is a scientific principle, and it's a pertinent consideration for Daubert analysis under Rule 702. The Daubert standard applies to federal cases, but has also been adopted for use by some state courts, including Alabama. In the 2021 federal court case, U.S. versus Smith, U.S. District Judge D.P. Marshall excluded NELOS data because of the proprietary software the cell carrier uses to calculate the phone's approximate location. His reasoning was that since neither the court nor the expert witness could speak to how the NELOS reports were determined, the jury could not be expected to rely on that information. 
In that case, Nilo's evidence was being presented along with other data to show that the suspect was present at a specific location where a crime occurred. So right off the bat, that situation is different from how we've used Nilos in Jessica Hamby's case. I actually believe the court made the right decision in that case based on the limited information and explanation the court was provided. In another case at the state level, the state of Indiana in 2015 allowed Nilos information because they were provided the additional information that the federal case, they didn't cover it. The expert witness wasn't able to address that. And so D.P. Marshall excluded Nilos in the federal case. But in this state of Indiana case, they had an expert witness that could actually articulate how some of this is done. And so the court did allow Nilos into the evidence. To be perfectly clear about the the difference here, I told you that Alabama courts require adherence to Rule 702. Alabama requires that this kind of evidence meet the Daubert standard. In Indiana, it's different. In Indiana, Daubert is only instructional. They don't have to obey it 100%. But in this Indiana case, they did go through and explain and address all of the points that the federal standard requires. So in that court case in Indiana, the court was informed that there are two possible methods used to determine the phone's location with Nelos. They either use triangulation or round-trip delay. Triangulation, that relies on data from three or more cell towers that are in contact with the phone at the exact same time, and they're able to use that to determine the the approximate location of the phone. With round-trip delay, that's the period of time it takes a cell phone signal to travel from a single tower to the phone and then back. Both of those are well-known methods for determining distance in the radio frequency community, and it could be successfully argued that they are, in fact, peer-reviewed methods. Not knowing which of the two were used for a given location point is really a moot point since either of the methods are scientifically accurate. The part of the carrier's algorithm that is proprietary is revealing which of those two methods were used. So kind of to put it another way, because I've been talking so much and I'm afraid Amber might might be falling asleep over there. I just want to ask you, Amber, you've, you've flown on commercial airlines, right? I have. So as a strictly layman that has flied on commercial aircraft, how do the airports know where all the planes are so that they can tell them what altitude to fly at, what direction to fly at, keep them from crashing into each other? Radar. Bingo. Radar. Radar is a military acronym. What it stands for is radio detection and ranging. Radios. The simplest explanation of what a cell phone actually is, is it's a two-way radio. That's how it works. When you think of it that way, and you consider that for decades, our airports have used radar 
to control air traffic in the sky and know where the planes are and be able to direct them so that they don't crash into each other, to me, it makes it really hard to believe that someone could say that Nilo's technology is unreliable or not scientific. The principles that it's based on have been proven over and over again. And when you realize that we're just talking about radio waves, there's nothing fancy about it. It's literally the same type thing as radar. It's the same type of stuff that I used in the military to detect and predict the impact sites of theater ballistic missiles launched by the enemy. This stuff has been used forever, reliably. It has a margin of error. There are things that can interfere with it. I think when you understand how this stuff works and you have someone that can explain it to you, you get over that hurdle real quick and you find that this is reliable. They're giving me a margin of error. I can trust that. And it's definitely scientific. I mean, scientists have been studying radio waves forever. So the bottom line and the point of all this information that he just explained, which was a lot, anybody that says that they can't get Jessica Hamby off Elgin Cochran Road is ignoring the hard evidence. And that may be because they don't know or don't understand. I wouldn't understand it. And I mean, I'm I'm sure there are a lot of uh, very smart and qualified people that may not fully understand Nelos. Michael's had a great deal of training. But when Jessica sent that message, they ain't going to shoot me for walking. She was not on Elgin Cochran Road. And even though the Edwards and the Moats have tried to maintain, all of them, that Jessica was at the Edwards property almost all of that night and morning, Nilos proved she was not. Why they would rather put her at their home than tell the truth about where they really all were that night? I don't know. But that's the reality. She was on Elgin Cochran Road. But compared time-wise to the rest of the night, she spent very little time on Elgin Cochran Road. Their time was spent elsewhere. Exactly. If we were talking about it was close, if when she sent that final text message, the Nelos showed her at the same position it showed her when she arrived at Gilbert's trailer, which with the margin of error that the Nelos gives for when she arrived at Gilbert's, she could have been at Gilbert's, but she also could have been at Eric's. She could have been at a gas station further down the road. She could have been on the north side of where the bridge is. It's a decent range of accuracy, but it's not super accurate. So if she had been there when she sent that last message, I would not argue the idea that she left Raymond Edwards' house that morning walking. The reality is there's absolutely no way she could have been there when you consider the Nelos data. It puts her somewhere else with a range of accuracy that is not big enough to allow her to be on Elgin Cochran Road or on that property. And then you've got to add to that, that when the message was sent, you have 
Eric Edwards receiving the message, they ain't going to shoot me for walking. And suddenly his phone leaves the Edwards property and travels directly to the location where Jessica was in when she sent that message. It's clear that Jessica was not at the Edwards property when she sent that message. Exactly. And he was traveling at a high rate of speed, too. We can do that math, too. Yeah, he was in a hurry, huh? He was. So the next question, somewhat related to that, I'll take it because it's much easier. It says, uh, the night that Eric and Jessica were running around all night, do we have Nelos on Alicia and Derek within that same time frame? We do not have Nelos for Alicia and Derek. We don't know if law enforcement has that information or not. We certainly hope that law enforcement has that information, but we, we don't know if they have it or not. The next topic is talking about law enforcement. And the first question is, what would it take to get the FBI involved? There was obvious police corruption in this case. Local police can't be trusted anymore. There are obviously people involved that know exactly what happened. Michael, I'll let you take that one, too. All right. And my answer here is not necessarily specific to the FBI. This is the way all federal assistance works. Federal assistance has to be requested by local authorities, usually through the state. Unless we're talking about a crime that falls into federal jurisdiction, something like interstate commerce or violation of a person's civil rights. The reason is under federalism, which the U.S. Constitution completely embodies, the general police powers rest with the states, not the federal government. And the Tenth Amendment reserves all powers not granted to the federal government to the states. That's a key component of states' rights. It's also required by the Stafford Act, and that explains why a state governor has to request assistance during a disaster before FEMA can roll in to help. To answer the original question, what would it take to get the FBI involved, Beyond requesting assistance, you would need to show evidence that a crime crossed state lines, that it involved organized crime or public corruption, or if we're talking about murder, it would have to qualify as serial murder or be some other crime that falls completely into federal jurisdiction. Even if you could get the FBI to come in and provide assistance on Jessica's case, uh, the bulk of the work is still going to fall on state and local law enforcement in most cases. And the prosecutors, the district attorneys, the attorney general's office, they're all going to be called on to help the U.S. attorney's office bring successful federal charges against those involved. The bottom line is that outside of a crime that falls within the jurisdiction of federal authorities, there's a chain of command that has to be followed. When dealing with a situation that exceeds the capabilities of local authorities, the locals have to ask the state for assistance. If the task is beyond what the state can adequately deal with, then the state has to ask for federal assistance. 
And like I said at the beginning, this isn't just a limitation on federal law enforcement like the FBI. It's across the board with all federal agencies like FEMA, Health and Human Services, can only offer help when they're asked for, unless the situation falls squarely into their jurisdiction. All right. So the next question, I want to know why the cop isn't being investigated. He seems to be shady, and I think he's threatening those that know what happened. So an arrest was just made in the 2017 murders of two eighth-grade girls, Abby Williams and Libby German, in Delphi, Indiana. Um, That case has been the subject of many true crime podcasts, television shows, and the online true crime communities. There's been a tremendous amount of media coverage on that case, and numerous potential suspects have been discussed in these forums. Richard Allen has now been charged with the girls' murders, and it actually happened today, the day we're recording, and it has set the true crime world on fire because this man has never been publicly linked to the case, even though he lived just five minutes from where their bodies were found. I say all that to make the point that if anyone is being investigated, law enforcement or not, um, it's not likely that any of us would know about it, at least not until law enforcement gets good and ready for us to know. It would be a mistake to assume that things aren't being investigated just because we don't know about it. And uh, that's something I have to remind myself of sometimes. You know, it can be frustrating to think things aren't happening, but, you know, maybe they are, and we just aren't privy to that information. You're exactly right there. And if there are people under investigation, like like the question writer alludes to, we're not going to know about it. And it would actually potentially hurt the case and the outcome and the potential justice for the victims for us to be aware of that right now. So the next question. Hello, my name is Larry King. And first, I'd like to tell you that I appreciate everything that y'all do. I enjoy the podcast very much. My question is, what does it take for a district attorney to represent the people in the district that they've elected to represent? My experience is that sometimes it's very difficult for anybody to communicate with them and to get somebody to call you back. So if you would, throw it out there. There may not be an answer, but I appreciate it. Thank you. So Mr. King, his son is a murder victim, and it is an unsolved cold case in another part of the state of Alabama. So he is... uh, Definitely speaking from um, his own experience here. And it is a common feeling among a lot of the families of victims that we deal with and, and speak with. It's not across the board. We have some who have had great experiences with their DAs, but we have a lot that have not. And the most common complaint is lack of communication or that the district attorney or anybody else on his staff doesn't return the family's phone calls. And 
I understand that that's got to be a very frustrating and hurtful experience. District attorneys, like sheriffs and some of these other positions that we have spoken of, these are elected positions. And, you know, I think a word that we don't hear as much now that we used to hear a lot, they were called public servants. They're elected officials, but they're public servants. You know, I understand that they're busy, but I do think it's a shame that a lot of these district attorneys are are not responsive and not uh, communicating with the families of these victims. It may be that they don't have any new information or answers, but I think that when there's no communication whatsoever, it uh, causes things to fester. And what can you do about it? If you've got a district attorney in your area that is uh, not responsive and, and disregards the residents of the county that he serves or she serves, maybe it's time for a new DA. One thing I I don't see a lot of is someone appointed within a a DA's office as the public affairs person. Most major police departments, most sheriff's departments have someone in that capacity. It it may be a collateral duty in, in some smaller departments, but you have someone that's received training and has that responsibility. I haven't seen a whole lot of that in the district attorney's offices, and that may be a point that we're coming to is is where they need that. So the next question, it says that several people that were interviewed on your podcast, they're wanting to know if the police followed up with any of them since those episodes have aired. We don't know. We don't know if any of these people have been re-interviewed or interviewed or not by law enforcement. We do know that many of them are or have been in the Marion County Jail recently. So I would, you know, I would think that they've taken that opportunity and, you know, we hope that they have. But again, we don't know what law enforcement has or hasn't done. Yeah. I'll read the next one for you. Why was Alicia so close to the officer? So I believe this question would be in reference to Alicia and Kenny Hallmark. From what we've read in Alicia's messages, it appears that Kenny was a director of the rehab in Hackleburg where Alicia and Jessica both went, that Resurrection Ranch. And it also seemed that Alicia was attending the same church as uh, Chief Hallmark and was also likely attending some classes that were offered at the church. You know, I mean, that's all that we know of to be factual. Uh, We could speculate, you know, that in small towns and and rural rural counties, um, that it's not uncommon for law enforcement to become very familiar with those in their communities, um, you know, especially some that might be involved with drugs, as Alicia was. Beyond that, you know, we don't have any factual information. I assume that um, they knew each other from Alicia getting arrested and going to the rehab. So the next question is, why is Haleyville Police not doing anything? So the Haleyville Police Department is, it's not the investigating agency for either Jeremy or Jessica's case at this time. They were the agency that took both missing persons report. So the agency itself was involved early on, 
but both cases were transferred to other agencies. Jeremy's death investigation was turned over to the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Many agencies played a part in Jessica's case, but ultimately the lead agency is the State Bureau of Investigation. The officers and investigators at Haleyville PD that were involved in both cases are no longer with the department. Um, And even the chief of police that was there at the time is gone. There's a new chief of police there. Uh, We don't have any complaints, you know, with the current chief or anybody in that department in general. You know, I believe that if their assistance was requested by the appropriate law enforcement in these cases, I would bet that they would probably be, you know, willing to assist in any way they are needed. The Haleyville Department, Police Department, isn't doing anything that we're aware of, probably because it's not their case and and they're not supposed to be. So the next question is, is anybody close to getting prosecuted yet, or does the town still not care? At the moment, we're not aware of any looming prosecutions in Jessica's case. And at the moment, Jeremy's case still remains closed, and uh, his death is it was determined to be a suicide. So, um, like we said before, we're not aware of um, any pending prosecution. That doesn't mean that the wheels aren't in motion, though. So, with all the people involved doing, running, and dealing drugs, why haven't they been busted and sat in the jail for a bit to see who talks. Can't the police play some mind games with them to get them to turn on each other? Oh, it goes on to say, I do still think there is a dirty cop pulling strings. They need more police involved. So the majority of the persons of interest in this case, and even others who were more peripheral figures you know, in in Jessica's case, they have all been in and out of jail numerous times since Jessica disappeared. If I'm not mistaken, Michael, you even made a a spreadsheet with their arrest. And like, if I recall correctly, like some of these people really hadn't been arrested all that much. And then all of a sudden they were in jail constantly. Is that correct? Absolutely. During 2017, you, you might have seen a couple of these people that got picked up for a paraphernalia charge or, or something minor, and they were in jail for 24, 48 hours and bonded out. As you get to the time that Jessica was reported missing, and within a month or a month and a half, almost every name that you've heard over and over again in Jessica's case ended up in jail. And more. Yeah. Some um, you haven't heard. They have been in, in and out of jail quite a bit, but it, it all seemed to really start right around the time that, that the investigation of Jessica's disappearance really started gaining traction. Once they figured out where Jessica went that night, who she was with, who she talked to, all of those people ended up in jail Many of them have told us that while they were in jail on whatever charge it was, an FTA or a probation violation or something, while they were in jail, they were questioned about Jessica. 
So I would say in answer to the first part of that question, law enforcement absolutely did that. That's a common tactic. I mean, you you want to have uh, some authority and, and some, some intimidation at work when you question some of these people, uh, especially about a, a disappearance and a potential murder. And if they've got any kind of arrest history, if they've got failure to appear warrants or some other warrant out there in the system, that's a perfect opportunity to go and get them and have them on edge and willing to usually, hopefully, you know, say something or give you information so that maybe they can get some relief on the charge that you arrested them on. And looking at the arrest history, I would say that that definitely happened. Eric Edwards, Derek Motes, Shane Reynolds, even Eric's cousins, uh, Tiffany Cochran and Brandy McKay, they've all served time in prison since Jessica's disappearance. Despite that, you know, it seems that none of them have given up uh, any information of value, at least not to our knowledge. Next question. Is there any additional police movement on this case? Again, not to our knowledge, but just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it's not happening, and we certainly hope it is. The next one is, has law enforcement ever obtained the location of the IP address where Jessica spent most of her time at that night, or has that just been swept under the rug? Seems to me that this information would tell Jessica's last known place to be instead of all the lies the Moats and Edwards are telling. We just don't know what law enforcement has or hasn't done regarding the IP address. I do think that that is very important information that would reveal where Jessica was most of that night, and I would certainly hope that they have done that. Absolutely. The next question is why, after Eric, Alicia, and Derek failed the polygraph test, wasn't there an arrest made? Law enforcement knew they were lying. Yeah, so polygraphs can be very helpful tools in an investigation, but they are not admissible in court, and law enforcement still needs a lot more evidence to make an arrest. Since Jessica is technically still a missing person at this time, that complicates things even more. And while we believe Jessica was murdered and a body is not required for a murder charge and conviction, those cases are a lot more difficult and involved. Law enforcement would need to have a very strong case that she was murdered and that those specific people are the ones responsible for it to be successful in pursuing those charges. In reality, other than the evidence we have copies of or have physically seen, we don't know what additional evidence law enforcement has, so it's impossible to give our opinion as to whether they have enough evidence to move forward with charges or not. So the next question, is it possible somebody in law enforcement warned Alicia Motes ahead of time that the messages and messenger accounts on Facebook were being subpoenaed, and therefore she knew to get rid of all the messages? I mean, anything is possible, but we don't have any evidence of that. I'm not even sure that that would really be helpful if it did occur, because... Eventually, someone can more than likely find what was deleted. 
and I would say most law enforcement know that as well. So good question, though. The last few questions that we have, actually, it looks like just one question is uh, more of a general nature, um, but it's it's good information for us to put out there again. Is there still a reward for information on Jessica's disappearance? The only reward that has ever been offered in Jessica's case was put up by her dad. Months ago, we requested a proclamation from Governor Kay Ivey um, that would offer a $5,000 reward. Governor Ivey's office uh, did contact me to tell me that the request for the reward would have to come from District Attorney Scott Slatton. So hopefully he will see the value in having a reward offered and, you know, maybe he'll make that request. That's the end of our Q&A. Now let's move on to the subject of Episode 13. On January 17th, 2018, just a few days after Jessica's mom filed a missing persons report for Jessica, Lynn received a ransom demand. The now-deleted Facebook profile name of the person who sent the demands was Dwayne Johnson, and the profile picture was of The Rock. The initial message read, Hello, Lynn. You don't have to worry. We got your girl safe here, okay? She's not going to be home for a while. There were a lot of messages exchanged between Lynn and Dwayne Johnson. He demanded $5,000 in exchange for providing Jessica's location. In return, Lynn and Keith agreed to pay the ransom, but they told him they required proof of life. They repeatedly requested photos or video of Jessica or just to speak to her. In return, Dwayne mostly sent cruel and threatening messages. He told Lynn that Jessica was the boss's girl and she was being kept in a basement. He told Lynn that she didn't understand and how many more daughters would go missing. He warned her, that he was dangerous to play with because he was the one that had the chains and the gun. In the end, the only photos sent to Lynn were stock photos purchased online that showed men holding an unidentifiable woman in a basement. A quick reverse image search online revealed these photos as such. When Lynn challenged him on the photos, he told her she'd regret ever messing with him. In regards to law enforcement, he told her to bring them on, bitch. They'll never find me. I'll find you, and I'm going to rip your head off. These conversations lasted for days, and towards the end, he told her he was going to give her 10 minutes to get him the bucks or else. He said... I poison her slowly, then have a fill of her body before sending you shots of your dead daughter. He told Lynn she'd know that she killed her because she was greedy. One thing we've learned 
is just how common these ransom demands are to the families of the missing. But it seems many of them come from random scammers. This one was different because there are indications that this demand came from someone much closer to home. While Dwayne Johnson's Facebook profile was an obvious fake, the account had friends in the area. In particular, some in the Double Springs area of Winston County. Located approximately 18 miles from Haleyville, Double Springs is the county seat and where the Winston County Courthouse, Sheriff's Office, and Jail are located. There are some very compelling indications that this account was being used by a local individual And one of those indications is so indisputable, it will make your jaw hit the floor. Join us next time as we further explore the strange ransom demand, potential local connections, and as we reveal another mind-blowing turn of events in Jessica's disappearance. As we always say, what happens in the dark will eventually come to light and we will continue to push for answers into what happened to both Jessica Hamby and Jeremy Abbott and demand justice for them both. If you have any information that could help to solve the disappearance of Jessica Hamby, please email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have it filled with great information about Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and we will continue adding additional content about Jessica and Jeremy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review. We are active on social media and will often share photos of Jessica. 
follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.